Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is Brittany Edmonds. This is the African American Studies Channel. And I'm very excited to be speaking today with Simone White, professor, poet, critic, artist, about her new book, Or on Being the Other Woman, out from Duke Press. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for inviting me. So I wanted to start with you just describing your book. You know, how does it relate to your other work? How does it fit into your sort of artistic trajectory? Do you feel like you've turned a corner in your thinking? Have you burrowed more deeply into your confusions? Do you think it's a departure? I mean, any way you have of just sort of describing this book and what it means for it to now, you know, be out there for us to read. Mm -hmm. Well, um, as with many books, especially on uh, academic presses, the book was written some time ago now. So I started writing these poems or this poem, I think of it as kind of a long book length poem. I started writing in 2018 when I was um, at Iowa, which is not a place where I live. I was visiting, I was a visiting professor at Iowa, uh, teaching at the writing workshop for a semester. And I was really inspired by what um, the MFA students were doing. And I just wanted to write too. And it happened that, you know, I mean, life happens and, um, you know, so I was, I really needed a way to process what was happening in my own life. And, and I came um, to this form um, while I was there as a way of working through my current concerns, which had to do with where I had left off in Dear Angel of Death. asking questions about trap music and how to talk about it, what it was. Um, so I was really deeply involved in listening to trap music and still am. I still, I mean, I listen, that, I listen to rap music. It's just what I do. But I, you know, had really, I was editing Dear Angel of Death, you know, the, the sort of final essay on music while I was at Iowa and turned in the final manuscript while I was there. So it was like, I just literally closed one, chapter and opened a new one mm. in the same moment. And so the book is not a departure so much as a continuation of the concerns that um, I sort of left off in Dear Angel of Death in terms of, but, but at the same time, formally is completely different. It, it really, and I think that um, that's just the way I've worked. I, I don't really, I don't really like stay with a, a, a form. Every every project seems to have its own form that I have to discover. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, I love I love the description. Close one chapter and opened another. I wonder, you know, given that this book is so formally different, given that you don't stay with the form, that's something we're going to be talking about a lot, I think, in this conversation. I wonder if you're if you're marking sort of any difference in how you're approaching. Um, these questions that 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 you are continuing into this book, um, and I asked that in relation to kind of how you answer that question. You know, I had peeped that uh, that the book was written over a course of time, and I wonder if I know you said you wrote it long ago, but I remember in one of the poems you mentioned being forty six, and I know that that's no longer the case because of the internet. And so I was just curious if no you return the case. to the poems, you know, <laughs> uh, during that long period uh-huh. that it took to be published. So I guess those are two questions, you know. It's a new chapter. Do you mark a kind of difference in your thinking about trap music, about form, about writing, about yourself as a professional artist? Um, and then, you know, because this book, it was so long coming, um, mm-hmm. did that affect the process of how it now appears for us as readers? Well, that's an interesting question. It has to do also with your sort of characterization of me as, a, as an artist, which is cool. Well, great. <laughs> but also, so... So it took about two years to write the the poem. It started in in the spring or late winter of 2018. And I finished it in the summer of 2020. So like the the pandemic happened and I thought I was finished. I knew I had a little bit more to write, but I started, I was like, I think it's just about done. And I, I wrote the last couple of poems in the summer of 2020. So it's not like it was like years and years of sitting around, you know, it, 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 
it occurred over like a normal length of time for me because I can't, you know, my life circumstances are such that I write when I can. And, um, you know, because I have a little kid and I'm a single parent. Um, but I, I mean, it's like, yes, I was really, I was really deeply thinking and like really heavily listening to trap music, especially I started to sort of turn the corner towards like Chief Keef. I knew I wanted to write about future, but I got really heavy into Chief Keef at that time. I started to be in conversation with a poet named Ben Krusling, who I had taught at Iowa. And Ben and I wanted to do something around Chief Keef together. But in addition to the poem, as soon as I put the poem down, I started doing critical writing about trap. So this really has been, and I conceived of it as a project that had two parts. There's the poem, and then there's there's a fairly significant chunk of critical writing about art and, and general, Black art in general, and, and sort of making, and the relationship of, of this contemporary rap music to how I understand the theoretical direction of Black studies. So that's mm-hmm. the other piece, which I'm still, I'm st- you know, I have about 80 pages or so of writing about that stuff. Maybe less. I'd be lying about how much I have. <laughs> Maybe yeah. it's like a little less. But you know what I mean? It's like, I think that the project is almost done, but it has been a couple of years of first writing the poem, taking what I learned in the poem, putting that to use and, and the listening that I was doing as I was writing the poem, putting that to use as critical material. Mm-hmm. Um, for the work that I'm doing in essay. Yeah, you know, I mean, I feel like a lot of those concerns enter into the poem. You know, I, I know I wrote to you and said I was sort of thinking through the layers of your book and trying to figure out how to make sense of this book-length poem. And I wondered if it's a single poem, and I'm happy you said that that's a good way to understand it. But, you know, I wrote a little piece mm-hmm. that says, you know, the book feels like it's about you know, I'm curious how gender fits in, which you, you lean more heavily into that into in this book, and we're primed to think of sort of gender and sexuality because of the title but it seemed to me like you know Uh a lot of the book is about being a black like it's about a black woman as a creator but then as an art professional you use Mm -hmm. that term and I loved it I thought it was hilarious because you use it kind of snarkily but then it's also the black woman as a problem Uh for art and then it's also you know the black Mm -hmm. woman you're writing her kind of autobiography through yourself and there seem times when the I was you but also not you um and I just, mm-hmm. I don't know. I just, I, I guess, I guess as you're thinking through those questions, you know, I don't, I don't know how to phrase it as a question, but I wondered if you were, if you were using the black woman as a, as another sort of point in a constellation to think through these questions about trap music, about black making. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. If you could just say something about that, maybe. Yeah. I mean, so the title, which obviously is like, is more provocative, I think, for others than it is for me, <laughs> um, it, it has to do with the questions that you're asking. It, you know, the Black woman as a problem for art is a great way of putting it. Um, you know, we're thinking about um, Professor Chandler, perhaps, when you're thinking about that that way of, of phrasing the problem. Um so the black woman as a as an other woman right a problem a problem not only for art but also a problem for um for feminism and a problem for blackness mm. um and how it is that our our experiences our gendered and sexual experiences not sexuality based but sexual experiences right like explicitly so um how how these um, are glancingly engaged theoretically and critically, I think, by both uh, feminism as kind of, you know, um, a practice that has not always been about Black feminism, but has increasingly come to be about the insights of Black women and, and Black femme folks in thinking through feminism, um, how important it is for our experiences of um conflict basically mm-hmm. conflict and disturbance to come into um a conversation about the future of 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 um of living right and so trap music as a basis for that 
obviously it was super important because what it did for me was was radically like really profoundly um disturb the question of black sociality as a, a dwelling place for black people and especially for um black feminist thinking because you know I've been doing all this reading about R&B lately. It's funny because R&B is like a place where I people laugh who know me because they're like, you hate R&B. And I'm like, yes, I kind of do hate R&B, but that's not, I hate a certain, a certain iteration of R&B, which was like the 90s, the late 80s and, and 90s R&B that I, that was on the radio when I was a young person, which really did seem kind of like, you know, retrograde or something <laughs> the the boys to men r&b of the moment and i was like i don't have anything this is not doing nothing for me and yet i was completely in, i was like you couldn't tell me anything about rap music i wouldn't go out if there was not rap music being played i was not interested in dance music i was not interested in house music i would leave the room if that music came on and i did love to go out so you know, I was really, the social world that I was interested in had so much to do with rap music, so much mm -hmm. to do with identifying as with a Black corner of the world. And, you know, like the musicology and sort of music history of R&B has spoken about or has, you know, the writing has often been about how R&B and soul music have really been, you know, the sort of um, the keepers of a certain kind of black feeling, right? The segregated kind of black feeling, which really doesn't cross over or whatever. Mm -hmm. I mean, this is a complicated conversation that others that like people like Nelson George or whatever have been having for a very, very long time. Um, and I guess, so there's a lot to say about how rap music fits into that story, especially trap music fits into that story because there has been like a general merger of R&B and rap music. Mm -hmm. Also, a, a crossover that cannot then be like put back into the bag. I don't think the cat is out of the bag in terms of crossover with rap music. It's it's pop it's pop music, right? It's the most popular music in the world. Um, and yet we don't have much in the way of um, intellectual engagement with it because it's quote unquote negative. Right. It's so ugly sometimes in its appearance. And um, but I'm like, you know what? I don't know any black women who don't have ugly experiences. <laughs> I don't have it. I don't know any, you know, I just don't. And so the and I so I became really interested in trying to have that conversation. Now, I'm not saying that black studies is not engaged with a certain kind of ugliness because right like Saidia Hartman's like double-edged language helps I think to talk about this which has also been taken up by Fred Moden so many different and important ways but I do think there's a kind of lauded sense of the social which needs to be for me unpacked and I needed to talk about the ways in which the social was not only a place of refuge, but also a dangerous place and, and a place where um, there was like both joy and pain. And in the critical writing that I've been doing, one of the people, one of the folks that I have turned to is Alexander Wahaley and, and Catherine McKittrick, who wrote this beautiful essay called 808s and Heartbreak a few years back that really kind of blew the thing open for me and sort of enabled me to continue with, with some of these sort of more, more theoretical bits because they were like you know the 808 is the sound of broken hearts mm -hmm. and I was like oh <laughs> there you go right well I want to I want to I want to kind of return to and I want to talk about all of that but I want to return to something you you said at the beginning of your your com of your answer um and you were you were talking about sort of black women's black women sexually um and how their sort of sexuality how they sort of sexually experience life is only sort of glancingly engaged theoretically um because i really mm -hmm. enjoyed your conversation about um sexually inflected dependency and how much that mm -hmm. theme is across 
you know, this sort of book length poem, because I will say, you know, I'm a black woman, I only date women. And I, it's still something mm. that is terrifying to oh. me. I'm like, oh, no, not that. <laughs> like, it does seem like a special <laughs> side of vulnerability for black women. Like, I'm always just kind of like, no. Um, and so I wonder, I guess I wonder if you could say something about that in relationship to trap music. And then I also wanted to hear you say more about sort of trap importantly, importantly disturbing the idea of black sociality as a dwelling space. That's just a mm-hmm. really potent phrase. Um, so those mm-hmm. two things I'm, I'm curious about in your, in your response. Right. Well, I do think this goes, this kind of like the sense of what a black woman might be right. Like ontologically or not, or, 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 you know, even that is a fraught word in terms of living, right? Like what, what is it philosophically to be a black woman? Mm-hmm. And, you know, I really do believe what Horton Spillers has written you know, about these matters, which is that this is a very, this is actually a very unstable space and that our existence in the world um, is just so far outside of the binary of like man, woman, it just, it just doesn't make any sense for us and for all kinds of reasons historical reasons but also because of the experience of having been constructed in the white imagination as merely the carriers of um, sexual economic value right and so there is a way in which you can't you can't walk away from that you can't walk away from it. And it is no matter what assertions you make about your body, about, you know, autonomy, about uh, whatever, you just can't walk away from it. That's what it means to be marked in this world. And um, and so, you know, the poem about Gunna or whatever, I love that song, the Gunna song that I refer to, um, which is about, in you know, I, I, I got me a mistress and she's independent or whatever. Um, and, you know, I was definitely, you know, just listening to that music, I was kind of like, oh, right, like the independent woman, the autonomous woman is in some ways always a woman who um, can work inside the economy of, of that construction, right? And so in trap music, it has become mm-hmm. the economy of strippers, right? The, the representation is of, of stripping. Those are the people who are economically powerful in the music, in the imaginative world of the, of the music. Because while not technically prostitutes, right, the sex work that is being done um, is freeing in the in the male imagination. Right? They they can become powerful through that work. Now I, I have no doubt that that is true, you know, because because the economic the ways in which we are the avenues of of becoming economically independent for us are so few and far between and you know I've never done sex work but you know it probably pays more than teaching you know what I'm saying yeah you know so um I see it as a figure you know it's a I see it as a as a way that the music engages with this existing construction of what black womanhood is and mm. and so and also I recognize that that's me, and and so to say to myself, well, what if that's me? Well, how does how does that affect? And it is me. So how does it affect my ongoing relations with people who would never for this for one minute imagine that they were calling me a hoe or anything like that? Right? They would never do that, and yet they do all the time. Yeah. Right? It's not it's not like so. You know, you get a person, and I do, I do date men, date so-called, <laughs> I have sex with men. And, um, and so, and it has been, you know, it's, it is a negotiation. How, how, how can one um, be in the world in which there's this very, very real sense that what you are does have to do with your value, your sexual value? Mm-hmm. Um, whether that value is explicitly around some economic arrangement, including marriage, or 
just has to do with like your general hotness or whatever. Mm. Right. And the ways in which that is, is made a calculation for no, a man's feel, status. No, I feel that. Like I said, it's stretched across that, you know, whatever, um, you know, into my world. I feel like I was like, mm -hmm, yes, about it just, I don't know. I love that part of your book. And so just still thinking about these, these ideas that you're, you're talking through. Um, I wonder if this is sort of related to, you know, the book length poem seems like, it seems like it keeps like sort of picking up forms and then dropping them, right? Or exploring forms for a minute and then dropping them, right? You, um, you invoke Alice Notley, you invoke Eileen Miles, you invoke Juicy J, you invoke this Gunna song, like you just said. Um, you know, for me, as I was sort of reading it, it just seemed like forms were being made and unmade or found to be inadequate or found to be um, treacherous, right? The book opens with you and your son sort of heaped somewhere and then you're heaped somewhere else. And then you describe a kind of uh, constructed unpile phrase that I liked very much. Mm -hmm. And so I just, I wonder if you, if you understand this book as, as a search for form, as, um, as a, as a register of form sort of necessary inadequacy, um, I don't know. Just, just how are you thinking about form? Because I feel like you, you, you explored across a number of vectors, and I feel like it's related to the conversation we're having right now. Yeah. Um, well, I guess in, just in terms of like who I think I am as a poet, whether or not I have a full understanding of that, um, I, I do think of myself as somebody who's experimenting with 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 what's there in terms what's available what's been available, what has been understood as what poems are. And, and so, you know, not like, I, I feel super uncomfortable using the term avant-garde, but just like thinking. Is that a racial thing? No, I, oh, okay. you know, I, be, partly because so many people who I admire, like Eileen, mm -hmm. um, Alice too, Alice Notley is a great poet. Yeah, no, great, yeah. You know, a great poet, but one who has not significantly dealt with race, um, which isn't even a criticism. That's just not the work that Alice is doing. Um, Sorry to interrupt you. I was just curious about the, the resistance to avant-garde, you know, because I do feel like look, we have Black avant-garde poets. You're one of them. Of course. You know? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, so. I'm late coming to that game that, that you know, the great the sort of great lineage of, of black experimental writing. Um, I just, you know, so the, the resistance to avant-garde has more to do with the sense that, that, that my sense is that the stability of forms or, or the sort of stability of, of the mainstream is probably less than we want to get. What are you pushing against? It's like, it's like the avant-garde, the, when you posit that there is an avant-garde, what you're suggesting is that there's something that has to be resisted or undone. And while I feel that, I, f I do feel that poetry is the work of poetry and, and making, you know, of poetics is to be in a, a questioning position with respect to language. Um, and so in a way that, that seems settled to a certain degree it's not the fifties anymore. You know what I mean? Like there's, there's no, there is in some ways an establishment of the avant-garde. And so, you know, who, who are we talking about when we talk about like that, which has to be resisted? I do, you know, cause you will just back yourself into every corner, but, you know, resisting and resisting without, I just want to just do the thing. <laughs> just want, I just want to, feel as close to the edge of what's possible as I can. That's what mm -hmm. I'm trying to achieve. I want to achieve, I want to write on the edge of what has been done already. That's, that's, that's sort of where I feel I belong. The questions that I have about poetry, about formal, about form, about what even counts, right, as poetry, which is what my students always want to talk about. Um, that isn't, like, I'm like, what if those questions are already and asked and answered? And and the question of what can be said, um, you can sort of proceed, right? What what do we know, and and what words will allow us to talk about what we know? What kinds of sentences? What kinds of non sentences? What kind of sounds can we make that will allow us to talk about what we know? And um, 
without it's like the avant-garde the sort of term feels like it gets in the way of doing that because it now has a significant literary history of 50 or more years maybe even a mm. hundred and so you know let's just put it in the background I guess of of what the work is is sort of how I feel about it um and at the same time you know arriving at a way of writing for this book it took some doing you know I just had to wait for it and and it did have to do with the movement that I was experiencing I was not at home I was on a lot of planes during that Mm -hmm. time I was flying all the time this is pre-pandemic um, you know, partly because I was in Iowa and I, you know, I needed to get back and forth to various places where I needed to go. Um, and so, I mean, I was like, I felt like I was like a Midwestern, like business, a salesperson or something. Sometimes I was like right. always in the, in the Chicago airport. Yeah. And, um, and so I was, yeah, I felt like I was like hawking books and stuff and also academic services I was on the job market at the time I really did feel like I was selling something and so um and I was yeah 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 you talk about that in your book you know and and I picked up on the sort of transitory or the just the number of transitions transition movement is is big in your writing um but I wanted to say just kind of quickly in in response to your avant-garde comment you know, I wonder how you understand yourself sort of fitting into to Black studies. And because what I like about your work is its willingness to to make things less neat. And so even where Black studies sort of deals with negativity, it, there's still these really kind of clean narratives where sort of negativity is kind of done to us in ways that allow us to suffer nobly. But it's mm. never it's never about what that means for us and how we deal with us, how we deal with ourselves. Mm. Um, And so, you know, when I read your work, it seems to sort of break open, you know, what it means to be you, a Black woman, every day in regular space with people who know what you are and won't lie to your face about it, even as they're lying to your face about it, right? You're Mm. always in that space. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, I wanted to say that about the the avant-garde thing, because I I, I hear you, right? Everybody's trying to write like Fred Moten right now. And so that's not avant-garde. You're just, I don't know what that is. But so well, we wanted, love Fred. We do love Fred, but we don't love Fred's, Fred's you know, self-appointed acolytes. Um, okay. But you know what I'm saying? All I'm trying to say is that I hear you on the avant-garde, the way that that can, can be an aspiration rather than a, just the doing. Um, yes. But I did want to mark that your work does press questions in ways that I think rub up against orthodoxies in Black thought and Black poetry Mm -hmm. and writing about Black women, Black people, Black music. Um, And I think that that's just important. Well, Um, I hope so. I really do hope so. And and, because that is my intention. I don't, I am aware of myself as a, I don't think of myself as an outlier. I have many allies in in the world of Black studies. Um, But, you know, but they are my friend Imani Perry, you know, who has been walking with me intellectually for a very long time. Um, you know, maybe I do think that we 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 feel we we feel differently about the Black Studies establishment, maybe than other people do. I don't know. You know, I I can't speak for Imani, but I do feel like um, because I am primarily a poet. Um, I have given myself a license, I think, to not think of the work that I'm doing as um, belonging to the academy. It doesn't belong to the academy. It belongs to all of us, I think. And that's what poetry, I think, has been for Black folks. I think it has belonged to all of us. and, Mm -hmm. And it does, I think, have that dispensation to to take up the everyday experience while at the same time, obviously I, I love theory. (laughs) I really do. It gives me so much pleasure, but also the moment that we're having in terms of the opening of certain kinds of theoretical opportunities or, you know, academic opportunities for black studies really should not be squandered on simply repeating the same words over and over again. And 
and it, I want everybody to have insight, you know, that is as profound as Fred, you know what I mean? And, and, and so it's really important for me as, as, as a person who's engaged with, for example, reading um, Fred's work, um, you know, trying to understand the work that Hortense Spiller has done, Hortense Spillers has done, um, trying to understand the work that, you know, um, that Nikki Giovanni has done. Mm -hmm. um, the, all, you know, thinking about how the theoretical work and the poetic work, the incredible work that, um, oh, help me, because I'm turning 50, my memory sometimes glitches. <laughs> you read about this in the book. It completely goes. <laughs> I'm like, what the hell is going on? <laughs> Denise Ferreira da Silva. Oh my God. You know, like what incredible work she has done. And it's so, it's like, I want, I feel like so incredibly privileged to be working at that, at this moment where she mm -hmm. is working. And I'm like, oh my God, let me just try and catch up with what she has already done and, and see, because it's almost like, when you do theory or you do criticism, one of the dangers is that it is so slow moving. And so it can take a very, very long time to process the work of, of De Silva, right? How, how can and does that impact our thinking about what we're doing in Black studies, not only as critics, but also as artists? Mm. And so trying to understand what impact that knowledge has on how we continue to work is like so hard because I mean how long does it take for everybody to read her her work <laughs> you know it might take half a decade for people to catch up or whatever and you know so it's a problem and it's an interesting problem for me with this project the whole Orem being the other women project which doesn't also involve this critical writing of trying in a way to like catch up a little bit to, to use what's happening in trap music, to use what's happening in black studies and try and like allow this intersection to happen. Um, the only other person in academia who I know the, their work on trap is Jesse McCarthy, you know, um, and I, I really love that essay on trap. Obviously we don't, think the same thoughts, but I'm so glad that that exists. And, um, but like I said, you know, I don't expect to see a ton of ton more writing on trap music. Also, it might be over or it might be nearing its end. I don't know. It's, a, it's in a weird spot. Um, it's in a weird spot. Yeah. Like what's on the radio right now. I mean, you know, cause I, you know, I don't, now I'm going to go on a tangent, but I'm from Atlanta. And so I oh, you're from it. There you when, go. Uh, <laughs> I grew up, I mean, and you know, you remember this period when, when radio stations were actually local, right? When being yes. from Atlanta and listen to the radio, you drive to Charlotte, you know, it's a different radio station. Yes. And that's just not really the case as much anymore. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, man, man, music is, is changing. But, um, gosh, well, I don't I, know when you grew up in Atlanta, but um, I, was in, I was in high school from, let's say, 20, what, 2003 to 2006. Uh -huh. so I graduated in 2006. So I, it's the heyday to me, you know. That was uh, a great period for yeah, music in Atlanta. Great music. <laughs> so, you know, yeah. Anyway, what was I going to say? I wanted to circle to uh, talk about, you refer to yourself often in your book as a, as a kind of odd woman. And so, you know, you, you see yourself sort of apart with other women in sort of upper middle class milieus at work in the graduate uh, seminar mm -hmm. room. I love that part <laughs> of your book where you're like, you know, I'm feeling odd. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it's me or if it's the students, but there's like fear in the room. Yeah. And I feel that all the time because like students are terrified, but they then like make that your fault. Um, and so I just wonder, you know, I wonder, I wonder if you could say more about being an odd woman and feeling that way, even amongst other women and what you think that oddness is about, if that is a part of your creep, your making. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Well, being odd just has something to do with like, you know, nonconformity and, and, and some of, Sometimes one would conform if one could, you know, um, it's not, it's not necessarily that, that these are conscious choices. Yeah, I'm, I am, I'm just me. And I don't, you know, and I've been this way probably for a long time, I've got more and more comfortable being me. But, you know, I had this, I had this boyfriend once who, who, who left, who was in fact, like one of the funniest people who I ever met, who, um, who was like, you are so weird, like, he was like, you know, like those big eyes. He's like, blink once if you understand what I'm saying. You know, <laughs> you know just like thought of myself as having like strange affect or whatever, but apparently I do. But the, I just don't always function socially like other people function. And it's not, it's not, I really don't care as much. I think I've come to understand about what people think of me. Maybe as is as is um, understood to be normal, you you know, like I just don't be thinking about that. I don't, you know, and it's partly I just don't care. And it's not like maybe I maybe I'm like on the spectrum. I don't know. I don't think I am, but I don't like I I register social stuff. You know what I mean? But I don't. I do not have a care for for policing. You know what I mean? And I never really did. I'm sure I was made much more uncomfortable as a young person and as a kid with how very isolated I could feel with with how how odd it seemed that people thought I might be. But but I've always had friends, you know, and 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 I I am so as a person, like I'm not a coupled person. I was married for some time to a person who I actually don't know why I was married to that person. And, you know, like I don't like, because I don't like them anymore. So I'm kind of like, what was I doing? Like there was a time in my life, you know, my, I don't know, but um, so I have done like some kinds of like normal things, <laughs> but I, I, my primary social engagement has been with numbers of black women and other women and i have an incredibly powerful circle of chosen family mm-hmm. um who affirm me in every way you know and and not like tell me when i'm like acting because they will be like you, you don't really have to do every acting crazy like this but for the most part have taken on you know the role of of caring for me and affirming Mm -hmm. me and so all the factors of like policing and normalization I have been able to sort of step outside because I have this other support network and it really is and I, I say a little bit about this in the book you know about how um we can still experience, you know, even among those with whom we're closest and trust most, a sense that we're being, you know, managed and policed to a certain degree, but, um, and that will cause friction. But I don't, I, I don't know if there's any question about my, my oddness or, or, you know, or, or disinterest in, in sort of certain kinds of conformity or even um, institutional conformity but also some of it is just luck you know that I have found myself in a situation where I am not beholden to certain rules certain societal rules mm-hmm. partly out of choice and 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 because I'm willing to be I'm I am willing to to exist within a certain kind of chaos you know there is a cost and I do be fighting on a regular basis <laughs> like okay. fighting a lot so it's yes. not, I do have to wage that fight. And so if you're not willing to fight, then you really, it's hard. I mean, if, if you like to come home and know what's going to happen, you might not be able to do it. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think, I think that's kind of my interest in the question because, and you kind of write about this in your book. It's not, you know, it's not the fact of your being odd that's a problem. It's what that signals and means for others. And often people take it, you know, as a kind of aggression, right? Like, mm-hmm. like you're being different. You just got to be different. You know, I'm sure you've heard this before. Um, and you people said- People don't say that to me anymore, Brittany. <laughs> oh, they say it to me. So I've heard that before. So, I mean, 
you know, you said you would conform if one could. And then, uh-huh. um, you know, I'm thinking about this line from your book where you're talking about, you know, this great phrase that you have when you say, I call myself ethically to account for dependency. I bought, mm. I brought this term to describe a quality of femininity from which I have broken, not by choice, yet broken mm. absolutely anyway. And so mm. I wonder if you could talk a bit about, about describing your sort of nonconformity as being, it's just sort of arising out of, out of how you exist in the world and you're not thinking too much about it and not really having, yeah. And then that on one hand, and then what you say in this quote, where you say that you're sort of being free of or breaking with dependency wasn't by choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Yeah. That's a really deep question. Um, you know, how does one come to understand responsibility for oneself and interconnectivity with, you know, whether it's family or, um, you know, intimacy, motherhood, all these, all these questions about how one is going to be in the world with respect to other people, you know, it's a long time coming, right? It starts from childhood. And, you know, I had this like incredibly powerful father figure Mm -hmm. who, you know, my dad was a very interesting and complicated and difficult man um, who, I adored, you know, um, but, but we were in conflict, especially as I came into adulthood. My father was the reason I went to law school, you know, he was a a lawyer, um, you know, but, but he, he was, he wasn't meant to be that, you know what I mean? Like he, he went to, he went to jail when he was 15 and thought he was not going back to high school. And, um, and then did go back to high school and the story starts over again, you know? Um, but I think that, that that experience, the experience of being raised as a person who, who was not allowed to think of themselves as somebody for whom um, gender identity freed them of a certain kind of responsibility in the world. I mean, and I say this sometimes, I say it jokingly, but that I was sort of raised to be a boy I don't think that's false. I think that my father raised both my and my mother was involved too, but my mother is a very traditional gender role type lady, you know, from the South kind of a, from, you know, my mother's from Mississippi, Um, but very traditional, you know, and has never broken with that. But, um, you know, it's like, you are going to have to be responsible for yourself Don't ever expect anyone to take care of you. And in a way, this was the first layer, right, of a kind of, um, you know, traditional gender role being stripped away, um, even in an upper middle class family, you know, to sort of be told, like, don't ever expect anything from from any, um, you know, heterosexual partnership. No man is going to take care of you. You're too weird. (laughs) And it wasn't like... And it was that was the that was the most generous thing, I think, that could ever have happened. You this sort of like, no, you're not going to. He knew me, you know, and I think he knew my sister too. And I think, you know, the sense that that there was a kind of power, right, a kind of fire, that that um, you know, white womanhood was just not going to fit for us. It wasn't, you know, like bourgeois femininity wasn't going to work for us and I think from very early he tried to prepare us for this kind of responsibility in the world Mm -hmm. and it was a success in some ways and in other ways it created a lot of problems (laughs) so so you know because I do feel uh how can I put it ungendered to a certain degree right like I do feel Mm -hmm. um I'm a woman I identify as a woman um, but I don't feel I ever had any like significant girlhood, you know what I mean? Or, or like, mm-hmm. um, and certainly now as I feel myself in conflict with adult men over, over the ways in which intimacy is going to play out between us, um, I know that it has something to do with my inability to, um, 
to be small, you know, mm-hmm. um, to accept a certain kind of, um, I don't even know how to put it because I never experienced it. You know what I mean? I don't know what it is because it's like the sense that, that somebody's going to um, take care of you or that you are going to be a dependent. Now, my dad took really good care of us economically. That's another thing I just want to say. Like I, I recognize the ways in which the sort of sense that I have of myself in the world did come from a kind of uh, safety, you know, a kind of a sense that I was in fact safe in certain important ways. Um, yeah, you, you know, know. I, I mean, as you're speaking, I was thinking about uh, a line that I really liked in your in your book, and I, I looked it up, and it's it's that phrase where you're talking about, you know, your ex husband, I believe you know, calling mm-hmm. you an ignorant fucker. Yeah, so I'm yeah. going to just read the lines because they seem related to what uh-huh. you're saying. So it says, mm-hmm. quote, I am an ignorant fucker, difficult to be close to, and that I am unsentimental and intimate with everyone. This is mm-hmm. connected to the problems I am working through regarding metaphor. And I, when I read that, I thought it was funny. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. It's funny. It's, so, it's um, funny. <laughs> but then hearing you speak, you know, just gave me an added gave it an added depth and so I wonder I wonder if you want to say more about what you were just saying in the sense of um being a certain kind of woman that being sort of incompatible with bourgeois femininity and then also the the ways that you sort of describe yourself as sort of being unsentimental and intimate with everyone it's just a fantastic gosh way to describe oneself you know it's it's great um so I I don't know that might not peak anything for you but that's what I was thinking about when you were speaking Um, I mean, obviously, some of the work of poetry for me still is emotional work and trying to find words for various, um, you know, energetic and emotional states of, of, of experience. I still believe in that. And, and, um, and, and yeah, like, I, I'm not that sentimental. Like, I, I, you know, it's funny, you know, I, I, I'm nice enough. You know what I mean? Like I'm nice to people. I try never to be mean to people, <laughs> but, but I am, but I, and I don't believe in being cruel and, but I, but I also, I'm not overly polite. I don't think my mother is certainly not overly polite. You know what I mean? Like, you know, I don't know. You're from the South. You know how direct yeah. women oh, yeah. can be. Yeah. I got and, and so, Yeah. I I don't think my mother's mean, but you know, she doesn't spare your feelings sometimes when it comes to, you know, like she's not like, you know, she'll be like, your hair looks terrible. (laughs) (laughs) What were you thinking? So, you know, it's like (laughs) that kind of stuff. I don't say stuff like that to people. That's just hurtful. But But, but, you know, like, it's not like I... I don't have a lot of acquaintanceships as a result of my unwillingness to engage in certain kinds of conversations and my disinterest in them. I'm just not that interested in, 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 um, you know, what I, I regard as in some ways a waste of emotional time. You know, those, those kinds of relationships that are either, you know, purely institutional or, you know, or um, casual work relationships. I don't, have relationships with people you know who I like okay I don't really even have like people who I just like occasionally see there may be a, maybe there was a time but you know as a single parent a lot of that time disappears as a single working parent you just don't have time for that but I kind of never did I and the so the the relationships that I have friends um lovers they really I I'm like I'm like okay you want to you want to have a conversation then let's have a conversation you want to talk about something Let's talk about it. I'm I'm open to that, but I actually don't want to bullshit. I don't want to, and mm. um, I'm just not. I don't. I just don't want to. No, that's good. That's good. Okay. Mm. Uh, well, I have two more questions, and then and then I'm gonna gonna let you go. I want us to have time to talk about, you know, your son and mm. how he appears in the book and how he helps you think through mm. a lot of the ideas we've been circling in this conversation. You know, um, I didn't write down the lines, but there were really great lines about how he wasn't interesting to you until a certain moment. But then yeah. you started being interesting, interested in his language, interested mm-hmm. in his, 
whatever, a whole bunch of things. And so I just wonder, and then you were thinking about the parts of you that should be available to him. And mm. this is maybe related to our anger conversation because you, it's like in the same sequence of, of writing, you have you being on the phone and your mom's like angry and being yeah. ridiculous. <laughs> and you got to cuss her out, you know, say that. and then you're like, oh, snap, like with my son, can I be that way with him? And you're right. like, no, I yeah. need to like, he doesn't yeah. need my anger. You know right. what I mean? And so mm -hmm. I wonder if you could just talk about your son and, and maybe how he shows up in the book and helps you think through some of the stuff and talk about. Oh, gosh. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, this this is a period of time, you know, yeah. and and we're growing together in that time. Um, being a mom, you know, it's like mind blowing, you know, because I, I wasn't like. I had my son when I was 42 and I, you know, so um, I spent a lot of adult years without children. And it's, so it's not like I thought of, you know, this was not um, necessarily the way I, you know, expected my life to be or go or anything like that. But, but he has become, we're together in this life now. And I regard him, you know, he was a small kid then, you know, he's sort of become a big kid over the course of the last four years. But now, you know, I learn how to be with him all the time and, and being, being available to him as a person who is not responsible for me, right? Like in no way is he responsible for me. And in, in all of the emotional upheaval, the intellectual confusion, that doesn't matter to him. Mm. And, and so trying, and so this is like the sort of ethics of, of the book in a way. It's like, I still have to, no matter how fucked up I am, I still have to show up for this person as um, as fresh as I can with open eyes. Mm. And, and it doesn't mean I have to be like, you know, it is a good enough thing, right? It's, it's just like, how can I be for him, you know, what he needs, but not also, I'm also not supposed to erase myself in front of him. I don't have to never be mad. I don't have to never be sad. I cry in front of him, sometimes theatrically. You know what I mean? If I get frustrated <laughs> and upset, yeah. you know, it's not, I don't have to hide that from him. I don't do it often, you know, but right. if things have really gotten heated, even between us, now that he's right. almost eight, we do get into conflict and I'll be crying because I don't, you know, there's no corporal punishment going on around here. So it's like, right. You know, how can we engage with one another in a way that helps him to understand that I am a person, right? Mm -hmm. And and yet I am here for him. And it's like it's it changes you, you know, it changes you. Um and you know, it's very it's it's a startling and um, you know, everyday reality shift, you know, to kind of be where he is on a daily basis. And, and also to, cause I also am in conflict with his father. We do not have a good relationship. And so keeping that off the table as much as possible, but also I don't have to pretend that I, I don't have to pretend that, that, that relationship is nurturing for me when it is not, I don't have to pretend cause that is some bourgeois bullshit to have to try and pretend it's like, Oh, we do it for the children. No. The best thing I can do for my son is to respect myself and to have him understand that, you know, I, I will, I will do anything for him. Right. Like truly. Um, but I will not be disrespected by anybody on his behalf or, or for any reason. And I think he will, that's going to carry us through. That's what I believe. That's yeah, what I, I mean believe. I just want to, I really like that phrase, you know, that doesn't matter to him when you were thinking about the ethics of how you show up as a mother and as a parent. Um, and I also wanted to say, you know, you had that beautiful part in the book where you described, you know, you're like, he'll call me sometimes and I always answer, but I don't come immediately. <laughs> <laughs> I love that part of the book. I was like, yeah, okay, that's great. Um, right. But, I'm, I'm not here to stir. <laughs> right. 
So I just, it's just, you know, you capture these, these, gosh, social complexities very, very well. Um, I really oh, enjoyed reading you. your book. Um, you. I said I was going to have two more questions, but now I have two more questions. So just because you brought up, you brought up your husband and, you know, a part that repeats in your book is about, and I hope you don't mind me bringing this up, but it's about how, you know, he's taken up with someone else and how you're not going to support that someone else mm-hmm. um, with your, mm-hmm. with your artwork. And I guess just to tie up some of the conversations we've been having, I said you you wrote this book over a period of time during a moment of of, of many transitions. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, man, I don't know what the question was going to be there, but I guess I kind of want you to talk about this woman, but maybe it's kind of inappropriate. I guess, you know, I what I can say, I think, is that she's not a part of this. You know what I mean? Um until she is right and that is that there is a sense the presence of a a man who is white in my life um and his sort of recoupling with a white woman gave me the sense during that period in my life and I don't think I've been wrong about this that there was a kind of alliance right that was both anti-black and anti-woman that he was willing to take up that shocked me. I didn't think of this person as a, as a person who I was going to experience racism from. And, um, Mm. and one of the things I think that happened that was transformative for me in my experience of that relationship, even after it ended was the willingness to traffic in um, racism in order to uh, gain some power over me and um, and to antagonize me in ways that, um, you know, I tell the story in the poem and, the, yeah. and that's all I'm willing to talk about. In ter- that's what I'm willing to say about it. Those were the things I was willing to say about it. But the sort of like, I mean, the gall, you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah. was you know, I still, I still am surprised by it. I, cause I really, I really was surprised and, you know, it wasn't because I didn't think that people were capable of all kinds of misogyny. There's some great thing that like, I think Cheryl Clark says in a book that I was reading, or maybe it's like an introduction to a book that I was reading. And, and I think Cheryl Clark said something like, you know, when men can't get power over you, they act out in various ways you know and um and that's that has been my experience of that of that relationship as it you know as it ended and 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 some of the ways were also you know um drafting somebody else into into um into the conflict in whatever ways, even unwittingly sometimes. I don't think that she was always aware, but also I feel like sometimes um, I give them too much credit. Yeah, I think people always know what they're doing even when they don't know what they're doing, you know what I mean? Because you know what you're avoiding at the very least, emotionally, energetically. Um, Well, this is a bad note to end on, but you know, I still, I'm curious about it. We're just running out of time, but you know, across your book, you know, how anger shows up to me, you know, for the most part in the first couple, the first two, three parts of your book, it seems to me that it's oblique, it's kind of submerged. But in that like last section, it comes out like full bore, full grind. And I, yeah. I wonder if you, if you think that that characterization is accurate. And if so, you know, what's anger doing across the book? Or do you think something else is going on? Oh, no, it's just pure rage. I, I don't know, you know, there's nothing. Um, there is, I mean, anger is not a simple, it's not a one-dimensional feeling. That it, and a feeling that one is experiencing injustice, you know, that, that one is being, um, is, is, I don't know, it's, it's, it's not, it's not, not the only thing I feel like one of the you know obviously one of the we have not said a word also in this conversation about you know the sort of primary love relationship of the book which also engenders a lot of anger right um Mm -hmm. and um 
I love that you didn't raise that, that, that what you asked about was my son. Um, but struggling, you know, there's, there's, you know, struggling to kind of like come to the surface of, of the world in which I'm living, right. Is really what's happening in the text, I think. And over the, over the time in which it was being written, I think that that struggle was particularly intense and, and, um, and yeah, that stuff, I needed to say it, that's all. And, 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 you know, I'm, I'm laughing because I'm like, oh, is it the, I'm like, which ones are the angry ones? Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. they're all angry, but there's, but there's also um, like the one about money, the poem about money. You know, it could have just been my reading of it, you know, because I was also reading in preparation for this, for this interview, mm-hmm. but I just didn't really feel your anger for real until like, you know, the last couple of sections, because before that, you know, right. you would, it's not that you weren't angry, but you seemed to have this kind of distance understanding of it. Like you were willing to be a bit of an anthropologist about it. Like, so you're annoyed yes. with your mom when you're on the phone, but you're more just like, here she go, making my day difficult. Now, you know what I mean? It more just seemed like someone spilled milk on the floor and, and you know, you got to deal with it. Yeah. But as you get toward the end of the book, it it's more, I don't know, it's more... I don't know. It's it's eating the words on the page, you know, and not in a bad way, but it's just it's mm-hmm. present in a way that it wasn't present at the beginning of the book. Present enough for me to notice it as the as the reigning affect. Where I don't know that I thought. I think the rest of the book just feels curious to me, which doesn't mean the angry parts well, aren't curious, but you know what I mean. That's I, yeah. that's it's got something to do with the immediacy of the writing. It's got to do, you know, so that, you know, if you're thinking of something that really does is is not a day book of any of you know, by any means, but, but is a chronicle of, of an experience of, of experience over a period of time. I think that when I began the project, there was, there, it was, it was more, it was artier, you know, it was, it was like, oh, I'm going to write about, you know, like rap music and, you know, sound and shit like that. And then I was like, these motherfuckers are really trying to kill me. <laughs> you know yeah no fair enough and I felt that more and it wasn't it wasn't it was just that that's the cast mm. that that the life took and it wasn't and so mm. and I did try to you know I I I don't know soon enough you know that the the essay will come to the fore and you know it will be clearer some of the the conclusions that I sort of reached about the music, which is like playing in the background, right, of um, of the text, but also it is, you know, the music may have also released the capacity, you know, to a certain degree to to um, to confront that anger and to be more interested in it. And it's not like I was not angry before or that I didn't feel anger before. I mean, why do, why do you listen? Why do you listen to trap music? Why do you listen to rap music? I was, I was reading this history, right. I was reading this history of rap music, you know, like the other day, it's Dan Charnas book. It's the history of the music business or whatever. And it's like, Oh, the first time I heard public enemy, it was like, people be jumping up. Like they were going to smack their mama in the club. And I was like, Oh, (laughs) right. so, so the release, right, of of um, of that energy is definitely part of what I'm interested in about about that music, and and because I don't slap my mother, <laughs> we we are good terms, and and that's partly because I have outlets, and you know, um, and the the both in my own work and in the work of others. Look, I'm with you on that, and that's a great note to end on. I also looked up this Greg Tate quote that I love about rap music mm-hmm. when you were, we were speaking earlier. But I will say mm-hmm. that people always seem to misunderstand that about rap music. Like, I listen to rap music to hear people bragging and to feel, <laughs> like, to be aggressive. Like, that's it. I want to brag. I want to stunt on my enemies. I want to stunt on my enemies. That's right. Yes. And I want to be aggressive at you know we're, we're out here that's why you listen to rap music and so whenever right. people come to me with it should have a message or it's like no that is the message like that's mm. the message mm-hmm. the bragging and it's fantasy and the aggression in yeah. most instances and and of course we want to 
think about and deal with the ways in which it's not fantasy for so many people. Um, but, you know, I I don't know. I mean, we that's a different conversation about, yeah. Well, real quick, like Tate, I love this phrase. I always use it with my students. Tate called hip hop Greg Tate. Yes, uh, of course. Yes, right. great Greg Just Tate. for folks yes. who might be listening. Yes. You know, uh-huh. um, he called hip hop music the most amoral, resourceful, and cannibalistic folk music in history. It's just mm. such a great phrase, right? Yes, yes. The most amoral, resourceful, and cannibalistic folk music in history. Just Gosh, love it. my yeah. goodness. Right? Mm-hmm. He captures it. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, well, thank you so much for talking to me about your book today. You know, it's been a, a really you. great conversation. You know, I could have, we could have kept talking, but these things are limited. So I got to cut yeah. us off. But, thank yeah. you so much for asking. I really enjoyed it.